0: And it's hard, you know, and, and what skillful means I bring depends on how much spaciousness I'm able to get. And if I'm in the midst and it's family and it's Thanksgiving, there may not be too much spaciousness. So and that's then it's okay too. Yeah, it's okay too. And so then we get to go back the Sunday after Thanksgiving and look it over and think Oh. Sure. But whatever, we're <laughs> all oh, great, you know, either or both. Anyway, so just know that we're, we're all in this room in the same boat.
1: Yeah, definitely. And I, I think just, uh, yeah, I think it's just getting that distinction where we know we're, what we're trying to use, like why we're engaging a certain technique or practice, right? That's one point. And then the other point is like, yeah, is it useful for you? Because yeah? Tonglen is, is the, the the approach is we're, we're in intentionally trying to diminish the mind that, that we're, we're focused primarily on ourselves, on our own needs. And then at the same time, we're wishing others to be free of what we're taking on, right? So, so there's like two aspects to it. But if we're using it for our own well-being, that's where I don't think it's a... No. Yeah, then, then you're fine. Yeah, then you're good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm the opposite. I try to <laughs> make things better for the whole wide world and I forget. Exactly. That's the other so flip. Yeah, good, good, good. Yeah, that's the other bypass that can happen. Yeah, that's what I mean, yeah. And, and again, like Sally said, there's no, I mean, we're all in this together. I do this, the reason I can talk to you about this is because I do the same, you know, I have the same issues, right? Not exact same, but I've gone through similar things, yeah. Yeah? Make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> like letting it, like... You know, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you got the whole day, too. We can keep talking about it. Because this... I mean, you brought up um, a, one of the essential things I wanted to talk about today. Because it's really hard to get this distinction between what is our... What are we aiming for in the Buddhist path? like, Like, what is really the aim here? Versus, like, what is our feeling that we need right now? And sometimes those get really confused. It's sort of like we we need some just ease some well-being but it gets confused with oh well then enlightenment maybe is going to offer me that and actually enlightenment is signing up for something much more challenging you know cuz we're like i'm going to f- i'm going to help all beings become enlightened that's like you know that's like one of the most difficult jobs ever right so it's sort of like um <laughs> so So yeah, so it's just getting these, you know, and and this is why we're here today to work this out together, you know, to, to, to think about it, contemplate it, to practice it. So anyways, (laughs) so um, what I wanted to talk about just briefly um, though we went kind of into, (laughs) we went into the deep end for a moment. I'm going to pull back out and we're going to go, we're in the shallow end. We're going to start to swim deeper. So I'll just go back to not quite the kiddie pool, but a little bit towards the shallow end now. Um, so what I was talking about, um, what I wanted to talk about a little bit just to introduce now, um, going into introducing Bodhicitta or the Mind of Awakening, um, more. So based on this quality of essence love, right? So based on this quality of coming into our own okayness without condition, without a condition, without needing something from the outside to provide that okayness or well-being for us, we start to develop, uh, um, sorry, by coming into that okayness, uh, which we can start to call essence love, this quality of or potential of love. So the way Sokna she uses this languaging is it's much more around um, kind of a, just this kind of notion of like, oh, okay, like I'm at ease. I'm okay. And of course we've felt this before. I think most of us in this room have felt this at one time or another. It's not like it's it's completely foreign to us. It's just that a lot of the time we are uh, preoccupied with thought. We're preoccupied with, with anxiety in the body. Or we're preoccupied with a very difficult or challenging emotion coming up. And we distract ourselves from just, we can just be here. Like if you just sit in your seat now, you're just here. So what? It's not a big deal. you know. And there can be this sense of just like okayness, well-being. And it's not a big, loud... You know, uh, noisy kind of like party in the park, you know? It's just okay, whatever, right? But it's especially this feeling of I'm not, then our needs lessen in the sense of what we need from the outside. It's not that we need, you know, um, uh, uh, some object or someone to provide that okayness for, for us, but yet we can enjoy that love or that you know, I love ice cream, as Sally found out last night, so, you know, normally I am looking to ice cream to fill my hollow emotions inside, just by the way, and I'm trying to sit up here and say, you know, I got it all figured out, normally that's how I, you know, eat ice cream, but once in a while, ice cream's like the cherry on the top, you know, where it's just, there's okayness, and it's just like, okay, I could take it or leave it, whatever, right, so you all know what I'm talking about, so, as we connect into this essence love, this feeling of okayness, like I said before, this is connected into our Buddha nature. And Buddha nature here um, mainly comes from the third turning of the wheel of, of, the, of Buddhism. So we have the first turning where the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths, right? Uh, the second turning of the Prajnaparamita Sutras, like the Heart Sutra and Vajrakata Sutra, etc., right? The 100,000 verse line, the, you know, all of that. <laughs> then we have, which became the Mayana Canon. Then within the Mayana Canon, you have the third turning, which is primarily concerned with, okay, so you're experiencing some emptiness now. So what's the expression of that emptiness? So it's primarily concerned with emptiness is not a nothingness or a vacuity. It has an expression. And that expression comes out in, uh, uh, as loving kindness, as compassion, but also many other ways. So in the Uttara Tantra Shastra, which, where, where it specifically talks on Buddha nature, a Sangha sort of, you know, goes into detail on the nature, what it means, what that quality is. So just briefly, this quality is something innate. It's something that we, that is not created by a, 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 like a theistic, like a, um, a creator. There's no, there's no creation to Buddha nature. It just is there, right? It's also not something that, like I said earlier, has a personality or identity. It's not a thing. It's not like our soul or something like that. A lot of people, there's a lot of debates throughout Indian Buddhism of debating, oh, well, then if you talk about Buddha nature, then you're somehow attributing some kind of permanence or soul. So then you know, you're not in emptiness around it. So again, there's all kinds of debates and things like this around this. But more or less, we're talking about our essential nature to be awake, the, that essential quality of relating to our experience as it is, right? And that, at the base of our being, is our inner freedom or our inner potential for freedom. And so we call that Buddha nature. So essence love is kind of a, a, a quality of that, right? It's not, it's not fully that Buddha nature, but it's a quality of that because essence love is also not conditioned. It's just that basic sense of okayness. So here, I like to think of Buddha nature also as... It's, it's both something, it's pretty foreign to us culturally because I think whether we grew up heavily in Judeo-Christian religion or not, uh, just culturally, uh, and there's no knock to any of those traditions, just culturally, there's a per- pervasive quality within America, uh, I found, uh, I could be wrong, of, um, uh, of original sin. And this idea that we are fundamentally, there's something fundamentally wrong with us and we have to get right, right? So there's this idea, and what I want to say is that, and this is for each of you to check, because this is also the process we have to unpack in order to develop bodhicitta, unpack in a feeling way. Um, That's not always conscious. It's somehow just in the body. And for me, I express this throughout my life as a sense of low self-worth. And again, I might not call that religious. uh, I might just say that there's other factors that were at play of, contributing to that low self-worth. But either way, I went through most of my life feeling I'm not a worthy person. I'm not fundamentally good. I need to go out there and do something or make something. When I met the Buddhist path, it was like, how much can I meditate and devour all this knowledge to be good, right? So, so much of our time is spent being good. But actually, from a perspective of Buddha nature, we are fundamentally good. We are fundamentally, we would use the word pure, And pure is a strange word in English uh, because it has a lot of other connotations, right, that we don't normally think. But when you actually look at the the word itself, it's quite accurate because it's just, it's not stained by something, right? So Buddha nature is essentially talking about a quality of our fundamental potential for awakening that's not stained. So I like to say we are fundamentally pure, not fundamentally. So there's an original purity, not original sin, right, from a Buddhist principle. But this is a quality that in a lot of, um, there's some Lam Rim texts. So Lam Rim in Tibet means like a graduated stages of the past. This is where we would start with some preliminaries and gradually meditate through in order to um, conceptually build an idea of the Buddhist path and worldview, right? In order to grow Bodhicitta and uh, work with emptiness. So some Lam Rim texts, they're quite skillful because they start with just this teaching on Buddha nature. They start with, Pointing out our fundamental goodness. Why? Because if we don't recognize that, it's very, very, very difficult to develop bodhicitta. It's very hard. And I'm not saying that as an obstacle for any of you where you're like, oh, shit, well, then I got to go do that. Or otherwise, you know, I'm not going to apply any of what Scott's teaching today. Of course not. We just work on them simultaneously. And that process is, of course, like it's a process. It's not something we're going to walk out of here today and be like, okay, I got it. You know, just like the handshake practice, it's a process. Um, but knowing this, knowing the information, we can then think about it and contemplate on it, and really see and study uh, uh, Buddhist philosophy a bit more. Practice, and then slowly, slowly, over time, we can start to have an experience where, when we start to touch our nature, yeah, when we start to experience and have small glimpses of emptiness and 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 bodhicitta. And all these factors, we start to see the fundamental goodness within us, right? And why is now why is that so important for developing bodhicitta towards others? So if we can't see our own fundamental goodness, our our original purity, how the hell are we supposed to see it in another person? And how the hell are we going to wish awakening for them? Otherwise, it just turns into a path of like do gooder, like how how much uh, good you know supposedly. Uh, uh, upright citizen-looking things can we do in our life, right? No, that's all wonderful. We should do that, too, right? I'm not saying to go out and, like, trash your, your neighborhood and, <laughs> like, like, egg everybody's house, right? That's not what I'm saying. Uh, you know, we should be a good citizen. But at the same time, like, where is that motivation for being a good citizen coming out of, right? And that's for each of us individually to, to analyze and, and see, right? I know for myself... Um, you know, we need practices to work with this, too. Because uh, I just moved to New York two months ago. Um, I'm new to the New York subway systems. <laughs> and I have found that to be some of the best practice in my life, you know? And, yeah, so it's so, it's so uh, uh, rich. I mean, just, and, and I'm noticing, I get on there and I see very little fundamental goodness. You know, I just feel, feel a lot of frowning people. My judgment comes out really strong. You know, I'm like, just want to get out of there. You know, I'm not happy. Everyone's not happy, you know. And then some days I get on and it's okay. And I'm like, oh, these people are wonderful, you know, like blah, blah, blah. (laughs) That guy just smiled at me, you know. So I could see it's coming from my mind, you know. It's coming from my judgment, from the way I'm interpreting the situation. But at the same time, when I'm not in that space of seeing like the fundamental goodness in another person, or at least honoring that possibility, then I can practice that, you know? So I can practice that by being patient when I'm getting on the subway. I'm just giving, you know, some examples. I can practice that by, you know, not scowling back at someone who scowls at me or who yells at me, you know? Instead, you know, practicing uh, patience, compassion, right? So that's where the tools of Buddhism really help. Because we're not always able to access this big Broad view. Sometimes we need very basic tools to access these, very just fundamental practical tools. So, anyways, so this, so within this, this what I want to talk about, um, what I just basically referred to was what we would call the ground, okay? So, the ground of uh, uh, our nature, the ground being our Buddha nature, the ground being that we are fundamentally pure. And what that purity refers to is we're fundamentally awake. So the Buddhist path also is uh, uh, putting forth that we're not, we're not trying to achieve an enlightenment that's not already, the qualities are not already there. So it's, it's, it's very different from like where we put all these ingredients together and then suddenly we have something new that wasn't there before, right? Here, everything's there. We're more uncovering those qualities, right? So from this perspective, it's very similar to like a window that um, has been neglected. So then over 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years, that window collects dust. It collects weather. It, uh, you think after 1,000 years, 2,000 years, if the window still exists, it's completely kicked over in things. It's no, it, it, from the normal person, they wouldn't be able to even classify that as a window anymore unless you went over and like, tapped it and analyzed it, right? Right. So this is what's happened to us, essentially. So now the bad news, sorry. I'll give you the good news first. <laughs> the bad news is that, yes, we are, I mean, so the, the good news is, yes, we are fundamentally pure. We are fundamentally awake. The bad news is right now it's covered with a lot of dirt, right? So otherwise, why would we even need a path? So the whole path is the uncovering of that dirt. So the ground is that that window, whether it has dirt on it or not, or if it's as limpid and clear as we're seeing through it today, its quality of being a window and be, having that purity and clarity doesn't change. That's the same, right? So this you have to get, otherwise it's very difficult to understand emptiness and bodhicitta. So do you understand that, yeah? The window is just the window. So if we paint it, if we do you know, pee on it, if we throw dirt on it, if whatever, right? If, <laughs> sorry, I'm just thinking of crazy. If all your... <laughs> all your dogs come and lick it and it has caked over with animal saliva, it's still a window, right? It's just, so all of that dirt is extraneous to the fact of its nature, of being a window, the clear nature, right? So that's essentially what we're working with when we're talking about Buddha nature. So the ground is that. The path now is we're working with all that dirt that's caked on. So the path is usually um, uh, described as confusion. So that's the good news. It's like, you know, when, that's why I said earlier when I said I like to confuse people first because that's the path, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we, we're we already confused. That's just what it is. So what I want to say is like we can relax a little bit too because when you hear Buddha Dharma and when we're practicing and we're like, Hmm, I'm not quite sure how that is or wow, I wish I had this experience or I don't have this experience. That's good because that means you're on the path. It means you're working. It means... We're working to uncover, right? We're working to clean off that caked on mud or dirt, right? So that's the path. And then the fruition is very similar to the ground in the sense of what we uncover through the path as we remove the dirt through practice, through study, through contemplation, right? As we remove that, we uncover the fruition or our own enlightened nature that is based in the ground, yeah? So here... So then this is a basic sort of principle of ground path and fruition within Buddhism. And each practice also has kind of like, and sorry, within ground path and fruition, then we have view, meditation, and conduct. And so each practice has kind of a view, meditation, and conduct. But I just wanted to set that as our premise if you haven't heard that before. Probably some of you have. But this idea of the ground being, it's something originally pure. So in a way, it's like a, Maybe you could say we're like trying to get back there, yeah. Maybe in a way, something like that. But then there is tricky because again, like, where is that? What is that? Anyways, so so the fruition is essentially when our awakened mind or bodhicitta is brought to its full uh, uh, full uncovered expressed potential, yeah so that a potential is fully matured, realized, and expressed as an enlightened being, an enlightened nature, right? No longer mired in, you know, in, in that dirt, I want to be clear, that's all of our, you know, sickness, rebirths, moods, ca- you know, whether my latte was too weak yesterday, all of that is in caked in that dirt, you know? All of the very gross sufferings we experience and, the, and we see in the world down to the most subtle, just this sense of unease because there's this sense of like a me here who needs to do something. Yeah. You see? So fundamentally all of that is included. So bodhicitta <laughs> finally, <laughs> after all of this, you know, all of my rambling. So bodhicitta, uh, the Sanskrit word here, Bodhi means awakening, and citta means mind. Yeah? So essentially what we're talking about is working with awakened mind here. And in its relative nature, it's an attitude or aspiration that wishes to attain awakening in order to help all sentient beings awaken, yeah? with an emphasis on the second part of it. In its ultimate sense, it's the very essence or nature of our mind. So in its ultimate sense, it's what I'm referring to as the, the sort of Ground and fruition, right? In its ultimate sense, the nature of our mind, which we'll we'll talk a little bit about today, but we don't have time to go into too much. So, we're mostly going to focus on relative bodhicitta, which has uh, two aspects. So, relative bodhicitta, and relative meaning it's conceptual. Relative meaning that it's something that appears, uh, and we can sort of work with it in in a conventional way, right? Ultimate meaning how it actually exists, what's its nature, right? So even though we're gonna talk about growing boundless love, boundless compassion, etc., bodhicitta, still from the perspective of Buddhism, it's just as illusory as this chair or a table, right? There's, it doesn't make it any more real, but it doesn't also lose its efficacy Or power because of that and that's what we have to start to understand because we have to talk a little bit about Emptiness today in order to understand bodhicitta fully and whenever I refer to emptiness. It's not a vacuity It's not a nothingness. It doesn't mean that something loses its energy or power or efficacy It actually means that's where the efficacy comes from right, but it's an efficacy. That's outside of duality It's outside of a subject object relationship and this being our primary relationship in way in ways we relate to the world, it's very difficult to understand. It's very difficult, even more difficult to have an experience of. So I just want to point that out, that as we talk about emptiness, please ask a lot of questions and we can sort of, you know. And you guys have had teachings on it and read books, I'm sure, and lots of things, yeah. So I'm not talking to uh, (laughs) people who don't know. So anyways, but yet emptiness is quite deep, as you know, and tough. So we'll talk it out. So, anyways, just starting with a little bit more on relative bodhicitta. Um, So, relative has these two aspects of uh, aspiring bodhicitta or the bodhicitta of aspiration, and then bodhicitta of engaging or engaging bodhicitta, right? So, aspiration is very similar to, you know, I'm going, I want to drive back to New York tonight, right? I have to go back to New York tonight, versus when I actually start out on the road driving to New York. So, that is engaging bodhicitta, in the, in the sense, yeah? With aspirations, just making that wish. Now, what I want to point out is, as beginners, and um, beginner, the way I define beginner in Buddhism is anyone who hasn't had a stable experience of emptiness yet. <laughs> Meaning, like, not just like a glimpse of emptiness, but they haven't stabilized that. I consider that a beginner. Maybe that's a little too extreme, but I like to, con- you know, that's how I use the term when I use it, just for your knowledge. So, I'm a beginner. Probably most of us are beginners in the room. Uh, if you're not a beginner, you're welcome to come up here and I will prostrate to you and you can teach, you know? <laughs> so, um, anyways. So, as a, as a beginner, most of our practice and path is going to be working with relative bodhicitta in its form of aspiration. And aspiration is very, very powerful, you know? I think I spent I a lot of years just kind of negating the power of aspiration on bodhicitta, and I just wanted to do, you know? I wanted to, like, get out there and benefit, or I wanted to do the paramitas or learn in this, you know, act, right? And we have to, when we start to notice that that tendency, we have to sort of take a step back and wonder, wait, what is fueling me here? Why am I so pushy about, you know, fixing the world or whatever, right? You see what I'm saying? We'll talk about fixing the world later, but... (laughs) that's another thing to discuss Uh, but anyways and then it's sort of like we're also I feel there's also a cultural condition you can tell me if I'm wrong too I'm just this is also for conversation I put it out there and also different parts of the country are different Um, there's a tendency to sort of not be so to not think like the a wish for something is so strong like is so powerful or worthy because we're so used to producing things and like we don't value things that aren't products like we don't value that's why Buddhism is getting a lot of flack and it's starting to shift and again there's always an ebb and flow here too but a lot of Buddhism is is moving now into activism uh, Buddhism was already activist activist it, it already had that principle the Buddhists, the Buddha is one of the biggest activists in, in Indian history but that activism came out of deep deep wisdom deep, deep realization and experience, so that activism actually had an effect, right? So again, this is a tricky subject, and I'm not saying don't, you know, wish for less, you know, fight systems of oppression and violence. I'm By any means am I not saying that, right? We have to do that. No question, right? It's just saying, what's the motivation driving these, and what are we really trying to get out of it, you know? And from a Buddhist worldview perspective, is the world fixable? this is very tricky and I know that's a, that's a, that's a very, uh, uh, I'm saying that on purpose to trigger people. Okay. Cause I want to get some conversation going on this eventually is the, you know, the Buddhist premise is that the world is actually not fixable and that's really upsetting to some people. It's very upsetting because it seems like, oh, are you saying then like, don't do anything? No. When we start to understand bodhicitta, especially aspirational bodhicitta, we start to understand, no, you have to reduce the suffering of others, but expecting it to be gone is is a fool's game. It's very foolish. It's and it also wastes a lot of our time in what could have more efficacy in achieving awakening, which is the the real sort of benefit to others in a very long-term way. Like my, it's a shitty example, but my dad, I'm a musician, and so my dad uh, taught me a lot of jazz. He's a jazz musician, and so I learned a lot from him and. He used to say all the time that old saying, you know, I, I can, I can fish. Oh, because we would get, um, we would get gigs like we'd do jazz gigs t- together in the Bay Area, and he would like he wanted me to go find them. You know, it's like a fourteen-year-old <laughs> kid or something. And I was like, oh, how am I going to do that? He's like, he's like, I could teach you to fish, or what is it? I could teach you to fish, or I could fish for you, or teach you to fish. Right? Yeah. That old saying. So this is very much like that, you know, where definitely we have to. Grow our compassion and love to serve others, to help others, to reduce their suffering. But a lot of the times, our own ego, you know, gratification and expectation gets wrapped up in that, you know. And so, the much bigger service from a Buddhist perspective, especially Mahayana path and Bodhicitta, is the teaching others to fish is t- helping them to awaken, to find their own awakening. I can't, fi- I can't find that for any of you, nor can you find it for me. But we can help each other, right? We can help people with information, practices, support for that, communities, environments for that, right? So that is the main aim here, right, which is much different. So that's when I say the world is not fixable. It's within that principle, within the principle of uh, beginningless time from a Buddhist perspective and also rebirth, of course, and reincarnation. So that all has to come into the the discussion, right, as a philosophical principles. So anyways, um, yeah, go for it, yeah
0: back to what you mentioned about arriving as a bodhicitta with your heart broken open all the time. Yeah. I mean, that would, to me, if you're approaching the world, your heart is broken open already.
1: Yeah. Right? Yeah. In, in a way, th- yeah, there's a saying, there's like a, I think it's Trungpa Rinpoche who said this, I'm not sure, but is the, the broken hearted bodhisattva, kind of like, you know, a, now a bodhisattva, to be clear, this is a person still working on the path. Right. It's not a fully enlightened being. Though it is someone who's gained ground, um, who has an uncontrived uh, bodhicitta res- res- like resolution, and an experience of emptiness, so they're also not as bound to their emotion, to their negative emotions and um, thoughts, like in the way we are. But uh, that kind of person is—they're still working to, to full realization. And so, um, yeah. So this idea of of a broken heart is is this very idea of The world isn't fixable, you know, and how can we sit with that? And how can we be with that? And that's why I I really feel the handshake practice is quite an important practice for us, because not only does it heal our own trauma and work with our own wounds in the body, we can come to this experience of essence love, but we also come to a type of resilience that like, it doesn't matter that much, like something really shitty can come to us and we can just be with it. So it's almost like we're able to first have a broken heart towards our own experience in our, in our bodies, in our feeling world, and then that grows the allowance and spaciousness to just be with the world in the way it is and others, you know? And the brokenheartedness almost seems like the death of the ego a bit. Yes. Right? Like you, you, you
0: grieved the loss of this part of your ego, maybe
1: not all, but... Yeah. And left you broken open because of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Also it takes away the fear and the anger. Yeah. And enables you to. Yes. Yeah, and then it's like, then we get into a really interesting question where a lot of people who um, get confused by this in Buddhism. Then what is the volition to do something when when they're suffering or to act when there's injustice or violence? You see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I do. yeah. yeah. Because normally it's anger, it's uh, attachment. Attachment's a huge one. Like I'm attached to my view uh, on a certain political issue and therefore you know, I get really worked up about it and I'm gonna enact change, right? Now again, this is a very difficult conversation to have because like, that line between something actually being beneficial and where our attachment is is fine sometimes. It's not always clear. For, I'll, I'll give you examples. There was a king Uh, in Tibet Uh, I think it was Songsen Gampo he was the first king was it him? yeah no no it was uh, uh, it was either Songsen Gampo or I always forget this stuff or the um, uh, Trizeng Dutsen I can't remember which one but there are two major Tibetan Songsen Gampo was the first king of Tibet when it became a Dharma kingdom and um, he was supposedly an, an, an emanation of a Bodhisattva like this kind of being who has stable realization of emptiness and uncontrived wish for the awakening of, of all sentient beings, serving other sentient beings to awaken. And um, there was, um, he had a policy, oh, and they said he was an emanation of Chen the Buddha of Compassion. And there was a, a policy um, that rob, people who robbed or stole anything got their hands chopped off. And many people got their hands <laughs> chopped off, you know? But what it did is it created an environment with more ethical... Uh, uh, better ethical conduct. You know, people avoided stealing to a certain... In that, I don't know if that works always, but in that particular time, supposedly, according to the story, it worked. And then the story gets more interesting, because they say, oh, this is where Tibetan things get interesting, where he, they said, oh, none of those were actually people. They were emanations of him. He was <laughs> emanating to sort of show society, like, how to behave. Now, again, we would look at it like, oh, well, why would you do that? Like, why not, like... The premise, then again, looking deeper, is that when someone steals, they create the karma to be, to have lots of suffering in future lives, be stolen from, to be live in poverty, to have like very weak and, and you know diseased bodies, all kinds of suffering. So in one way, it's looking at the situation. It's looking at okay, well, this created a lot of fear, and you know, he possibly ch- chop people's hands off. But in the long term, it may have created people from creating much worse karma. Now again, I'm not advocating for either way. I don't have a judgment. About, I'm in my own rumination about Tibetan Buddhism at this point, because there's a lot of it I'm, I'm having trouble digesting in some ways. I, I was a full-on, you know, very traditional Tibetan Buddhist. And nowadays, I'm questioning whether what is cultural and what is religious. But either way, I think the story still has a point. You see what I'm saying? Where we can see something, and it seems like something's going to be beneficial. Like, Sorry, we're not supposed to talk about politics, right? <laughs> Can I, can I just say one thing? Okay, but we're not going to get into it. Yeah, yeah. Just gonna, it's just an example. I just want to point it out, just to see, like, when we're talking about awakening and bodhicitta and benefiting others, the principle is huge. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of millions of lifetimes working with someone or people, right? Uh, I have the feeling with some of my teachers that they've been working with me for hun- so many t- lifetimes, you know. They're still like shaking their head. What the hell? You, know? <laughs> you don't get it yet. But anyways, uh, that's a side topic. <laughs> we can talk about that in the break. So uh, uh, but just to give an example, like, um, you know, people don't agree with with the uh, uh, choice of president now and, and all that and, and, and all his violence he's doing. So like, let's say he's gone and he gets kicked out. We don't know if what replaces them is going to be worse. You just really don't know. It's so volatile the way cause and effect work, the way karma interacts with that. So just one very small example of like, we, this is why we need wisdom and this is why bodhicitta, when we're talking about compassion and love within the context of bodhicitta, it always has to involve wisdom or, or this wisdom of emptiness is what we're talking about. Because that brings an ability as we grow that to make wiser choices on how we engage compassion and love, right? Also, I'm, I'm very much into social justice uh, work, and especially uh, 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 anti-racism, and uh, 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 working to undo uh, aspects and, and cultural behaviors of uh, systemic white supremacy, which I think also harm white people a lot, right? So I'm very interested in that, but I also look into it and wonder like when we kick up dust a lot of the times, I'm not even talking specifically to those things, just in social justice when dust gets kicked up, are we gonna actually be able to make change or is it just gonna create more problems? And I'm not saying either way, I'm just posing that, that issue, right? As a conundrum talking in this wider Buddhist worldview and saying that I know it's not, it's not popular view because we, we wanna believe we're right. We wanna believe we know the right answer for everything. And yes, we might be right. I mean, anti-racism is obviously correct. It's like, you know, when people are being oppressed and there's violence being done to them, of course we need to <laughs> engage and reduce that or eliminate that. But the thing is, are we correct in the method that's gonna be able to do that? That's more what I'm talking about. And that's where the wisdom has to come in. Um, anyways, sidetrack. <laughs> that's my politics and, uh, and Social justice for the day. So so um, <laughs> so anyways. So so developing bodhicitta, this mind of a awake- Do you guys need a short break? Are you guys okay? It was okay? Yeah? Okay. All right. Okay. Sounds good. Take a break three. All right. We either take a break when you get worn out or I get worn out. That's usually what, what happens. So 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 developing bodhicitta. So usually, when we when we're talking about bodhicitta, they frame it in in categories of getting us inspired to practice it, right? So I thought I'd cover a little bit of it of uh, the immediate benefits to developing the mind of bodhicitta, and then the long-term benefits, right? So some of you might already know some of this, but I thought to review it again. So the immediate benefits of bodhicitta is by reducing our self-cherishing mind, we become more happy, right? So I've been talking about this already. But we can see, just by the example I, I talked about of the Dalai Lama, Thanks, just that example of the Dalai Lama, right, His Holiness Dalai Lama, when, when he saw the, the, the poor beggar in India and he, he uh, uh, um, his pain went away, his physical, literal, phys- very painful physical pain went away because his compassion arose so strong, right? So we can see here, when we reduce our self-cherishing, we become more happy. I'm sure a lot of you have this in your life because it sounds like a lot of you were in the serving professions. And you can see when you're serving others, there's less uh, 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 suffering for yourself. Another immediate benefit is our destructive emotions reduce, right? So this is a natural benefit that starts to happen. Also, because of that, our fear is reduced, right? Because when there's less self-cherishing, there's more cherishing of others. What are we afraid of? You know? If we think about it, where does a lot of our fear come from? It comes from our attachment to, to uh, not, you know, Our fear of not getting what we're attached to, to what we want, our fear of losing what we have that we're attached to, (laughs) yeah, our fear of uh, uh, suffering, right, which is a valid fear in a sense from a human perspective, yeah, all of that. So fear, we could say, is like the fundamental delusion we work with. It's something uh, very, very difficult to to kick, (laughs) right? So anyways, fear is reduced. And um, just to point out, there's a wonderful quote from uh, Shantideva in, in his uh, Bodhicaryavatara, the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life, where he says, even, if even the thought to relieve uh, one beings, uh, uh, sorry, if even the thought to relieve living creatures of merely a headache is a beneficial intention endowed with infinite goodness, then what need is there to mention the wish to dispel their inconceivable misery, wishing every single one of them to realize boundless good qualities, right? So pointing out again, aspiration, what we're working with. So right now, all we're working with is this wish. May all beings come to their full Buddha nature, completely free of suffering, completely free of uh, all the dirt that's, that's caked on their window, right? And we'll talk about uh, what that means. We'll talk about enlightenment a little bit later. But anyways, um, so now the long-term benefits, some of them. So again, Chandi Davis says, all the Buddhas who have contemplated for many eons have seen it to be beneficial. For by it, the limitless masses of beings will quickly attain the supreme state of bliss. So again, the, in many sutras, it points out the, the, the benefits of bodhicitta, the long-term benefits being if we want Buddhahood quickly. So here's where the, the Dalai Lama says, like, be, uh, uh, what do you call it? Be, if you want to be selfish, be smart selfish, you know? So the, the smartest way to be selfish is to generate bodhicitta. Because, by the way, we become enlightened much quicker. And we can see why. I'm, I'm pointing out the method and the technique now of when our self-cherishing reduces, there's less sense of, of, of self to protect. There's less sense of a self that suffers. And it's much easier to realize emptiness. So this is why we use bodhicitta as a method, too. It's very powerful for realizing emptiness. We can actually think of emptiness as, as like, or, or we should say, the, yeah, Emptiness is one coin with two sides. So you have one side, which is just the bare recognition of the nature of reality, which is that things are fluid. They're not fixed. They're not singular or permanent or independent. So, therefore, when we try to look at something and find it, we can't find it. That is emptiness, right? Inexperience. That's one side. The other, you know, and in the sense of related to the self or I, when we look for a sense of I or self, we can point everywhere in our body. We can point places in our thoughts and emotions and mind. But when we actually analyze it, we can't find it. So I, I, I challenge you to do this, you know? Try to do it. And that's, this is the practice of emptiness, right? Where we, one way to engage Vipassana practice. So, but the other flip side is when we reduce the self-cherishing by focusing more on... on others' needs, on, on the benefit for others, also our sense of self, our sense of fixed, uh, autonomous, independent self reduces and can be eliminated. Right. So it's just like two sides of the same coin, what we're working with, right? And that's why we always say in Buddhism, the paths of method and wisdom are practiced together like two wings of a bird, right? So the practices of method all refer to anything developing the mind of bodhicitta. So, you know, practices of loving kindness, compassion, equanimity, all these kinds of things. Also, shamatha is included in that. The practice of wisdom is anything that develops the wisdom quality of recognizing and abiding in emptiness. So so bodhicitta, another long-term benefit, it it will not only reduce our negative emotions, it will finally eliminate them completely because it's the main antidote to the self-centered mind. That's what I was just pointing out. If all of our fears are caused by the self-centered mind, then cessation of that mind is key to our happiness, right? So think about this really carefully. If, you don't, if we don't have a self-centered mind anymore, what's, what's there to be afraid of? What's there to you know, be happy or be sad? You see the logic here? Now, of course, an experience, not easy. And we might, you know, it's not difficult to understand that. Or sorry, it is difficult to understand that in a direct way. But we can understand it conceptually, yeah? Yeah. <coughs> For Some reason it just made me think of um, Janis Joplin. Freedom is nothing left to lose. Mm.
0: Nothing left to do. To nothing left
1: to lose. Oh yeah 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 yeah.
0: <coughs> like freedom from all of freedom from all this fear. Yeah.
1: Is that if you don't cling to yourself, there's nothing left to lose. Yeah, and, and yeah, definitely, and then fundamentally we're working with recognizing where is there an even, like a self to cling or not cling to? You see, that's the deeper question. But yes, you're correct, thank you. So then, again, bodhicitta is a primary cause of Buddhahood, and we can start to see why now. And what's very clear is that we can train to have this mind called bodhicitta, so this is possible. Uh, And we have this kind of mind. There's no doubt it will be the source of true happiness for ourselves and others. Ultimately, it will lead us to full enlightenment, but more immediately the awakening mind can bring huge benefits to ourselves and others, right? And joy, right? So we can just see in our own lives, like when we're serving our families or doing something, and we're really joyful in that service. So, so wonderful, right? Such a, such a beautiful feeling, right? So that's just all the way from that, which is a more temporary experience, to Buddhahood. So now um, I want to get, is there any questions or comments or anything? I'm fitting a lot in, because I want to get to practice, that's why, after the break. Okay. So, a few preliminaries for developing bodhicitta. Um, and some of you are already pretty well-versed in these, so I, I don't think I need to go into a lot of detail, but there's a few kind of key points I want to mention. So, already we discussed the preliminary, which is well-being, which is something I would, just, I would call this a cultural preliminary. Uh, in lots of teachings from Soknerim Shea and in my discussions with him and other Tibetan lamas Generally within Tibetan culture pre chinese China Chinese uh, communist invasion a Lot of well-being a lot of just happy for no reason Okayness essence love whatever you call it most likely just because a lot of community more tribal culture and um, there's a lot more spaciousness, not a lot of cognitive pushing, so they weren't they weren't cognitively the smartest people until they were educated more. But deep down, pretty uh, okay. And I'm sure you had lots of exceptions to that as well. You know, I'm sure you had mental illness and, and different things as well. But we're talking just a generalization. Now it's a little different story because you have Tibetans in diaspora and you know being educated in the same way that we were and Experiencing a lot of, you know, similar anxiety issues and all of that. Anyways, um, so that's the preliminary we we spent the whole morning on. Now, going into the preliminaries, entering the path of liberation. So the path we talked about this morning was more the path of healing, right? Or well-being, which isn't necessarily dharma. It's just sort of basic uh, uh, becoming just a healthy human being, right? Now, the preliminaries within the dharma path are... Renunciation mind, which I'll go into, Uh, stability in shamatha or some stability in meditative concentration, right, and then developing a measurable equanimity. So renunciation mind, which you probably are are all familiar with, is based off of chewing on this first noble truth of the Buddha. So like I said earlier, uh, I think there's a reason the Buddha taught the first noble truth. You know, Uh, it was I think there's a reason. It's the first thing he, 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 he said right when he was an enlightened being, when he was requested to teach. Is because unless we do that thoroughly, unless we engage that uh, over a long period of time with a lot of thought, effort, and contemplation, deeply into our own experience and what we can see around us, we're not going to develop a sufficient wish to get out of samsara. We're not going to develop a wish to transcend that suffering because we're just going to be mired in it not understanding what it is, right? And a lot of us, uh, unfortunately, myself included, uh, mistake a lot of our pleasure, uh, 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 sorry, mistake a lot of our suffering for pleasure, right? Just reversed it. And this is very tough to come to a conclusion about, like if I just, if I say this at most crowds, I usually get arguments from people, you know? Because you guys maybe have been training and studying and practicing Buddhism for longer, you know? maybe you won't, or maybe it's just like a Vermont thing, you don't like, you know, very polite, right? But a lot of Americans, you know, we treasure our attachments. I just wrote a, I, I'm doing an ongoing blog series on uh, on my nine years as a monk, and the last one was all about my path as a musician, and um, the difficulties I came up against as a monk, not being able to do music. And sort of, when I tell people that, I'm telling you, 80 to 90 percent of the time, I usually get, it's not an argument, but it's like a, oh, wow, well, why can't you do music? Like, that's such a wonderful thing. And, and uh, oh, that's so bad, they take, away that, take that away from you. And I'm like, come on, you know, like, sure, music's a wonderful thing. We're not denying that something can be beautiful and joyful and bring joy to our lives. But at the same time, you can also see that a lot of these things in our life distract us. They distract us from our practice. They distract us from seeing into the nature of something. No, ultimately there's no difference between uh, uh, the sound of a monk hitting a gong and like a heroin filled, you know, uh, punk rock musician like, you know, screaming their head off. There's not really a difference ultimately, but relatively there's a huge difference, right? (laughs) So, So we have to like accord to relative reality at the same time, you know? So something that causes us joy and beauty and something we like to listen to, maybe you do like the heroin field pumpy, you know? and that's fine. there's no judgment. I used to. <laughs> uh, but anyways, my point is <laughs> that we we often get stuck because we're attached to it, and so then when someone questions that attachment, we're like, "Who the hell are you to question my attachment? I like my." Goddamn Oreo cookies, you know, or whatever it is, right? So with music, it's so interesting because I think music is such a beautiful thing in the world and it's such it brings people also so much healing um, that it, it gets a lot of flack in the monastic path when people say, Well, why can't monastics play and listen to music? Again, like the monastic path is very specific. It's very primarily focusing on this renunciation mind, recognizing, oh, okay. I'm gonna cut out and put a boundary between what often hijacks me from my practice, right? It doesn't mean we can't later incorporate that and work with it in our practice, but often we fool ourselves. And so we have to be very honest here. So renunciation mind is really about discovering what is suffering for myself? What is dissatisfaction? And being honest and stop avoiding. It doesn't mean we have to become a hermit and unfeeling and totally closed off from other people. That's the opposite extreme, right? But essentially, to develop renunciation mind, we need to meditate sufficiently on the three types of suffering. So it's mainly what i sorry get in these huge sidetracks <laughs> because I get excited. So <laughs> the three types of suffering are um, uh, the suffering of suffering. So we co- sometimes call it the dukkha of dukkha, uh, the suffering of change, and pervasive, all pervasive suffering or per- pervasive compounding suffering. So y- you all know these already? You should, should I, some of you, no, it's like new? Okay quick. So suffering of suffering is just what we know of when we use the term suffering and pain in English. Sickness, old age, death, all of that stuff. Painful emotions, you know, when your car breaks down, all of that stuff, right? Suffering of suffering. Very obvious, very relatable. You know, uh, I'm Jewish, so it's the basis for all of our friendships and connections, uh, talking about it, uh, you know. So that I always joke with people because uh, people... Used to tell me I complained too much. I said, This is how my this is how, this is how my people talk to each other. It's how we this is how we're friendly with each other, you know, you don't understand. So, anyways. <laughs> so then now getting more subtle. So that's the most gross type of suffering. Something everyone knows. And, you know, really from a Buddhist perspective, the Buddha pointing that out, a lot of people get stuck in that and they say, Oh, that's all Buddhism talks about. Actually, no. Like the Buddha spent very little time on that. He got more into these subtler types of suffering. So the subtler are suffering a change. So this is very tricky, because as we're sitting in this chair right now, how long we've been sitting? An hour and 15 minutes, something like that. (laughs) It's at least keeping the, uh, you know, I want all of you to think and and just silently answer honestly to yourselves. How comfortable, how how pleasurable was it to sit down for this session after kind of walking around and eating? It's It's okay. But you'd say some kind of pleasure, yeah? I mean, maybe it depends on your body, right? My chair is pretty cushy, so I felt a lot of pleasure, right? Now I'm kind of feeling like getting up, you know, an hour and 15 minutes later, right? I'm starting to get a little sore. Um, I could use a stretch, that kind of thing, right? So within this type of suffering, the premise is that we sh- that we have to reflect on is the moment I sat down and felt that pleasurable feeling of of the relief of not having to stand anymore, that in itself was suffering. So this is questioning the very notion of what we view as as pleasure, right? Now this relates to everything, all those kinds of experiences, that first bite of food when we've been famished, my first bite of ice cream when I have a lot of attachment to the ice cream, right? All of that. this isn't something that I'm going to sit up here and say and then you're, you guys are going to nod your heads yes or no. This is something we each have to contemplate. We each have to dig deep. And that's why I've, I like to say we have to chew it like a cow. <laughs> like a, like, or like, a, like someone in deep contemplation, you know, just chewing over so and over.
0: Scott, is the suffering of, uh, you know, I've just walked five miles and now I get to sit down and have a drink of water. That's pleasurable. It's not suffering.
1: No. But
0: the suffering is in knowing that it won't last.
1: No, the suffering is in the very feeling of that pleasure.
0: And how is that suffering?
1: Because it's compounded and it's impermanent. So the very notion or feeling or habit that that it was pleasurable is false.
0: So that's the suffering of change.
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's the suffering of change. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot more subtle because like, like you can see we really have to chew and meditate on these because that's not our experience. Like when I sat down in the chair for this session, that was not my experience. Oh, I'm suffering now, right? And actually, I don't think that's the, the intended point, right? The intended point is what are we relying on, you know? I like this word reliability. So renunciation mind is really coming to a conclusion. Of what's reliable and what's not reliable. right? And I'm getting to that point more. I'm just kind so,
0: of a long road towards it.
1: Suffering and change has to do with impermanence.
0: Why isn't it called the suffering of impermanence? Because if I sit down and it's, uncom- and it's comfortable. Change impermanence, you then can. The impermanence is clear to me. Mm-hmm. That it will change is clear to me. That its suffering is not clear.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's. Anytime there's impermanence, it it con it connotes uh, it involves because it's compounded, and so within the four seals of Buddhism, one of the seals is anything that's compounded is in the nature of suffering. So compounded is like another way we could say impermanence. So then, because of that impermanence, it's it's already in the nature of suffering. It's just in Buddhist philosophy, they either talk about it in that kind of way or they talk about within these three types of suffering of the suffering of have changed. It's just a different system for explaining a similar thing. Does it have
0: anything to do with attachment? You're attached to the pleasure of it?
1: You know, this is where it gets tricky because I think in pop Buddhism, we like to say like, oh, if I could just be not attached. That's true, what you just said is true too. I don't wanna negate that, that's true. But it's also within the aggregates, and this is where it's going deeper. I'm really gonna start to bum some of you out now, (laughs) probably. Where it goes deeper is just the, the notion of having we're been born into a body with the five aggregates. And when we're experiencing those five aggregates from a dualistic point of perspective or point of view, we're not recognizing or realizing emptiness. Then within them is always suffering, pervasive all the time, even when we think we're not suffering. That's essentially what I'm trying to get to, right? So then even if we don't have attachment towards it, you could still say there's a subtler suffering in there. Now, when we're realizing emptiness, and that's the reason we're not having attachment, you could say you're not within suffering at that point. Emptiness is sort of like a different option. Does that make sense, kind of? So, yeah, so it's maybe just a semantics thing, the way they use it it to systematize uh, so we can understand it, like, you know, scaffolding for it. So suffering of change. And so the third type of suffering is pervasive, all-pervasive suffering which relates to what I just, you know, what was kind of our conversation briefly, which is anything that is compounded is in the nature of suffering. So when anything where two parts came together, which means there's a a dualistic relationship happening, it produces impermanence and suffering, right? And similarly, it relates to the most subtlest form, which the Buddha is really getting at, of not knowing the nature of self, not knowing that we're... Fully free, not knowing our Buddha nature, right? Not knowing the ground, or recognizing the ground of our nature. That is the most subtlest form of suffering. Why? It's like the roots of a tree. It's the whole basis for the entire thing to come up. And we're not talking about a beautiful tree here. We're talking about a nasty tree, one like in your neighbor's yard that drops all kinds of sticky shit in your yard, and you got to clean it up, right? <laughs> so, so. Um, New York tree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not. Definitely not Vermont. <laughs> it's. It's like a pure land here. <laughs> so. So in Buddhist path, really, I. You know, one really key way we can understand this is, we can hit at the roots, or we can start chopping branches to hit at the roots. So we kind of do both. So chopping branches is like meditating shamatha. Meditating on uh, analytical emptiness, analytically meditating on emptiness. Meditating on bodhicitta, loving kindness, compassion. That's all working with the branches of the tree, chopping them down. But the root is when we recognize and realize emptiness. Then we've the whole entire tree dies because we've killed the root. So this is the most subtlest type of suffering. It's just the dualism of grasping at a sense of self that's not there. Doesn't mean you're. Doesn't mean you don't exist. Just means this sense of. A feeling in our chest, in our brain, in our body, where we feel there's a type of independence to our identity, a type of rigid fixation or uh, 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 inherent reality to it. Right. So this is what we're hitting at through bodhicitta and through meditating on emptiness. So I see a lot of eyes doing this. So yes, it's this is stuff, tough stuff to understand. That's why. That's why you know you have people who go on you know, monks go into 20 year, 25 year programs to study this stuff. And even then, they're just gaining a certainty that's intellectual. They still have to go meditate on it to gain an experience, right? If they didn't already. Mm -hmm. So let's take a break. Uh, Maybe let's do 10 minutes and yeah, perfect.